Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday. I'm actually pressed for time. I may end up doing this in installments because um, I've got a very, very busy schedule. But uh, uh, today's talk is is requested by, it's sponsored by Srili Bornstein because uh, he, ta- he told me he was interested. He's a big fan of the Kaja Glover, the Eretz Tzvi. And wasn't somebody I ordinarily would have thought of, but since he was kind enough to be a sponsor before and now, those people who are steady sponsors are most willing to accommodate when possible. Uh, and the more I gave it some thought, the more I thought it's, it's an interesting subject, um, because probably people don't know that much about it. And uh, the history there is very rich, though. So I have to watch myself not to get off too much on a tangent. Mm, so this is uh, what, you, what you call the Gona Kozhoglov, uh, who was a very sweet former who was a Polish chef, uh, lived all of his life in the belly button of Poland, in the heart of Poland, what they call Congress Poland, and uh, was murdered by Hitler. So he was born in 1884, he died in the war, probably around 60 or so when they killed him, something like that, and uh, which is, of course, part of the general tragedy of Polish Jewry. Central Poland is exactly where they exterminated all the Jews. And uh, the background here is very complex because... You know, I don't usually do Hasidic figures. It's a it's a complicated subject. Um, but the Kashuk Lev was not a Hasidic Rebbe. He was a Hasidic Rav. And he was a Hasidic Posek. And he was a Hasidic Rosh Hashiva. So, uh, but he wasn't a Hasidic Rebbe. So I just mentioned four types of positions there. It's a Rav. It's a Rosh Hashiva. Uh, it's a Posek. It's a, what do you call it? And a Rebbe. They're not identical, okay? Uh, the Hasidic movement, may I remind you, is a movement of modern Judaism. It's like Reform Judaism is modern. You know, it's a bit different, obviously, but it never existed before. In the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, there was no Hasidus. Moshe Rabbeinu was not a Hasidic Rebbe. Otherwise, the Jewish people wouldn't give him all this trouble. <laughs> you know, if you're a Hasid, you follow the Rebbe. You know, Moshe had the other way around. David Melch was not a Hasidic Rebbe. The Rambam and the Ramah and so forth, the Raj were not Hasidic Rebbe's. The Balabatim didn't listen to him. <laughs> this is part of their of their life. A Rav is a different story. Rav says something, you listen, you don't listen. A Rav says something, you got to listen, if you're a member of the group. Now, um, therefore, the office of Rebbe Admor is invented. It's a new one from the 18th century, 19th century. Uh, so listen well. At least I'll try to make a call here while I have time. Uh, I might have to go do something later. There are different positions over here. Most of the people I've spoken about in these podcasts, your usual guttle, if I can use that terminology, was uh, an Avbezin, or let's say a Rosh Hashiva. Okay? And uh, my predilection has usually been for the people who are Avbezins, as you can tell. Uh, not always, but often. And Avbezin means that guys, a 
salaried official and employee of a community. He's the Rav of a Kehillah. Uh, and therefore, he's the official posting that Kehillah. And he's in charge of the basin system. Paskin the Shalos. That's what Nodi Huda was. That's what the Ramah was. That's what Marshal was. That's who the Rasha basically basically was. And so on and so forth. Right? Uh, that's that's who they were. Um, the Av Basins in classic times also were Shashivas very often. So, the Nebuchadnezzar had his own Yeshiva, and the Ramah had his own Yeshiva, and the Marshal had his own Yeshiva, and so forth and so on. Okay? You know, when the Chavaziar was there, he had also Yeshiva, small, large. But what does the word Yeshiva mean? Uh, yeshiva can be a personal Yeshiva, Yeshiva can be institutional Yeshiva. Uh, keep that in mind. The old school was he had a personal yeshiva, that people were drawn by someone's charisma, and if the financial wherewithal was there, to go and learn by Plony. So I heard that the, uh, I don't know, the uh, Shagasai just became the rabbi in this town, and he's inviting those who can afford it to come and learn with him every day, and I want to be one of them. Or, uh, you know, Yonasan Apeshitz. Or, uh, like I said before, you know, the or something like that, okay? Panamiris, you know, something like that. Now, um, that's, that kind of yeshiva is totally personal because people are drawn to this person, so they'll go and learn by him this amount of time, that amount of time, whatever it is. Then there's something else, which is a much more recent invention called the institutional yeshiva. In which case, the yeshiva is like a college. Uh, a university in the sense that it has an institutional identity independent of the person running it. So, for example, in Israel, Yaponovitz Yeshiva, when Rav Shach died, they got another one. When this one died, they got another one. Like that. You see? The Mir Yeshiva, this one was there, and then he died. They got another one to be the head. And so on and so forth. Near Israel. You know, like that. Uh, that's a much more recent thing. That's the development of the Lithuanian Yeshivas. Everything I'm talking about today will be no to our hero. Okay, I'm not just spouting off here. It's all by way of background, uh, and it's because I'm trying to explain to people who have no idea what would be the background of, of a Kajid lover. What's the historical context? Uh, even historians today are only starting in the last 15 years to sink their teeth in this very interesting Tukufa when he lived in the late 1800s and the first part of the 1900s prior to the Shoah, prior to the Holocaust. It's not, especially the Hasidim in central Poland. It's not a subject that's so well known by the historians. Uh, the hagiographers, of course, throw in a lot of lies. That's the problem with hagiography. And, you know, it's not so easy for researchers to pick apart and do the job of Borer. But uh, it's happening now. Some serious scholars are working this kind of stuff. Dissertations are coming out, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Now, um, so there's the Rov. The Abbasin, there's a Rosh Hashiva. Often the two posts were identical, but not necessarily. You had many people in Jewish history who were heads of a yeshiva, either personal or institutional, and were not Rabbanim of a Kehillah. That's not what they wished to do, or that's not how it worked out. That's not what they were. So you have a Rav and a Rosh Hashiva. And today, the two posts are really distinct. It's very rare. I can hardly think of any cases where somebody's a rabbi of a Kehillah at the same time as a Rosh Hashiva. I would say Rosh Hashiva is a full-time job, wouldn't you? Now, um, that's that. And then, uh, posek means, there's a guy right Shalosh and Shuvis, that, that sort of thing. Which, again, is not identical. You, you have this, you have these types, you have those types. 
and then is a is a Hasidic Rebbe with a tish with chasinim with the the chotzer, you know, with the people coming and with the brachas and all the rest of it. Now, um, in the let me put it this way: the Balshenta was not a rov of a kehila. See, well, Balshenta is unique, but you know, after him, uh, they weren't uh basins usually, but you could be, uh, you know. Uh, what's it called? Lebiyutz Berdishev was a rov in Berdishev, so he wore two hats. He's a Hasidic rebbe, but he also was a rov. Uh, you've heard of the Satmar rov, not Satmar rebbe. Well, he both. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Uh, uh, the bells of rov, but the bells of rebbe. He was both. But there are other people who's just a rebbe, and uh, you can just best a rebbe and not more, and you're not uh, uh, in charge of any one kehila, and you're not you don't have a, a yeshiva. And you stole a rebbe anyway. So, when the Hasidic movement started, it, it, it started not in Poland proper, but in Ukraine. The Valshemtov did not live in Poland, he lived in Ukraine. Now, at that time, Ukraine was part of the kingdom of Poland, if you want to look at it that way, and the official language of the government was Polish, but the population were Ukrainian, didn't speak Polish, they, they were Ukrainian. That's interesting, people don't know that. The Valshemtov and the Magana Mezrich, these people were actually living in, in the Ukrainian part. The story of Hasidus is that it spread into Poland, meaning it spread westward into Poland, and it didn't get past Poland, it didn't get much into Lithuania, and it didn't get into Germany. That's the story of the history of Hasidus, okay? But Poland, it certainly did get into, but when the Hasidic movement uh, penetrated, invaded Poland, here I'm talking about the heart of Poland, what we call in history, and where our hero lived all of his life, is what's called Congress Poland. Because after the Napoleonic Wars, when they had a peace conference at the Congress of Vienna, they drew up new borders. And without give, giving you too many historical details, that'll probably be boring to you, um, they said that the former kingdom of Poland will now be reduced to the heart of the belly button of Poland. Just the central area of Warsaw, Lublin, Lodz, those kind of places where this population is all Polish. Uh, all Polish claim. No non-Polish minorities the way it used to be in the old kingdom of Poland. So the Jews that lived there lived in a very Polish uh, environment. Now, I realize I'm saying things that many of you have no idea what I'm talking about. You all think all of Poland, is, you probably think all the languages there are the same, all the ethnicities are the same. But Eastern Europe is a cauldron of competing and very sharply different ethnicities, even if they all look the same to an American. <laughs> uh, now, uh, when Hasidus hit Poland, central Poland, which was after the death of the Magad of Mezrich, it's not even close to Lublin, people like that. So it took a certain form, and many historians have written on this, and to, to dumb it down to the simplest elements, uh, when Hasidus hit the central Poland, it, uh, how should I do, it blended together with the existing, uh, very from, I'll use the word Litvish, culture, to produce, that's a term that you'll be familiar with, to produce the Polish Hasidus, which was very heavy into learning, and learning Be'in, and uh, uh, now, they're Hasidim, and they totally are into all the Hasidic stuff, I'm serious. But at the same time, they mixed it together with a very heavy emphasis on Limanat Torah, and I would even say an elitist kind of attitude, which was not there in the Balshanta's time and in the Ukrainian Hasidism. Um, I'll just give you a, a very quick story. I had an uncle... Uh, who was very old when he died in 1975. I was a young. And 
um, he, I used to visit Minneapolis once on Blue Moon, and he, he and he this is around 1900. I'm talking about something like that, or 1910, and he went to Krakow, and leave his Chassidish at the time, and it's before the First World War, and he so he was dressed like a Chassid, you know. And he and and not only that, but I mean, he was like in some little Hasidic uh, yeshiva there or something like that. Actually, not a little place. He was a Vengel. and he went into a ger shtibel, and he said, "What time? It's a dav mincha. What time is mincha?" And they kicked him out. They said, "Das a ger shtibel. Do dav mitnish do lentmen. This a ger shtibel. Here we don't daven. We learn. Ah, that's not true. Of course they daven. But I'm just saying, it's it's a, it's a uh, superior. It's 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 a very uh, you know look at it." Litvish elitist superior attitude. Mm, you're here for davening, uh, uh, you loser. This is a place for learning. Uh, that came very much to be associated with the Polish Hasidism. And uh, the epitome of this is the Kotzker, of course, in the early 1800s, who uh, you know spurned the people who uh, you know put on airs and all the rest. Of, Do you learn? Can you learn? Are you into MS? Are you full of baloney? You know, he's a very sharp critic of people and things like that. There are many legends and misinformation about the Kutzker, but this part is true, that, uh, you know, uh, let, me, let me put it this way, the Kutzker had his own little yeshiva, or whatever you want to call it, learning group, and the base medrash, or something like that, and um, if you wanted to get in, every three days you had to do like a chabur with a chiddush, <laughs> you get it, in front of the others, uh, if, if you went three days without a serious chiddush, a, a serious kash, and a serious terrorist, or something like that, then they booted you out. That's a boot camp. And what does that mean? The Marines want a few good men. <laughs> okay? And uh, uh, the Kutzker son-in-law was Avni Nazar, um, who was the Rebbe of our hero. Uh, the famous Avni Nazar, Sagat Shavarov, simply means that when the Kutzker died, which in the 1850s, around close to 1860, when the Kutzker died, uh, under weird circumstances, uh, he, he had several disciples, Including his son-in-law, and one was the Chedushim Rim, and one was the uh, Avni Nasser, and he moved around here, there, 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 and he actually had trouble. If I remember the story correctly, he had trouble finding the right place in Central Poland because um, he wanted to be a rov, but he also wanted to be a rebbe. And a lot of communities, they basically say, if you want to be a rov, then none of this rebbe business, you know, uh, because Poland wasn't all Hasidic, even the Central Poland. The, I would say about four, the, there's big debates among the historians. How large was the Hasidic portion of Eastern European Jewry? That's a fascinating topic, but that's for historical um, seminar, not for you guys. And uh, the bottom line is, as far as I know, and it's all I can ever tell you is my best uh, information, what I think. As far as I understand it, about 40% of Polish Jewry were Hasidic up to the First World War, let's say. And that's a big number. Although not like reading the books, that's like 80% or something like that. That's ridiculous. Uh, but still, 40% was a lot. And during the first half of the lifetime of our hero, that's the environment in which he lived. He grew up in a Hasidic, uh, he's born in a Hasidic little village, and uh, his parents were like that, and so on and so forth. So the Avni Nazar finally came to Sokhachov, and there he was able to make a, a go of it and wear the, the four hats that he wanted to wear. And he was, of course, a genius and a maslich on all four hats. He was a rebbe. The Chesachachav Rebbe, he was a Rebbe, and he has plenty of Hasidus in his writings. You know, he's got all the Hasidic stuff, no question about it. Uh, he was a Rav, uh, 
and became like one of the foremost rabbonim of basins in Poland in the 1800s. He was a posek. You don't need me to tell you the shalos and shuvas of the nazar. He was a rosh yeshiva. That was he made a a, a a personal yeshiva, not an institutional yeshiva, a personal yeshiva that people came to learn by him. And if your rosh yeshiva is also a rebbe, so it's just an interesting sort of thing. People like myself, or I imagine many listeners, now I have all kinds of people listening, I know from the emails you sent me, but people like me are not used to somebody who's a Rosh Hashiva also being a Reb at the same time. Like, <laughs> I grew up, as you can sort of tell, in a very literature background, I couldn't imagine Rabbi Ruderman having a tish. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's off, the, off the discussion. But people like, I'm talking about like the Sarah He's, he's a Rosh Hashiva, but he also has a tish. Although, by the way, I read that he told the Yeshiva boys that it's more important to learn, don't go to the tish. Tish is for the older Hasidim and the Balabatim. So there's that Lifshisha thing, which is learning, learning, learning. But when you're older or something like that, then you become regular Hasidim, then you join the, the regular group. This is a, a, an interesting world. And, of course, he was a post-sig, and when I say Rosh Hashiva, he, he excelled in all these hats. And he was a big Tzaddik and so forth. And uh, I would say, wouldn't you, who were the biggest Talmud Chachamim in Poland in the middle, late 1800s? I would, I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I would imagine the Sachachavr and the Gereb, you know, Spas Emes, Chedushimim, I, I think. You know, maybe I'm uh, forgetting people. But he's up at the top. Now, our hero, Ari Seifermer, was born, as they say, born in small little places in central Poland. Doesn't matter the names of villages, one main thing to you anyway. And uh, he ends up, uh, it's 1884, so he ends up when he's uh, 12, 13 years old, something like that. Those are the days he used to go off and learn yeshiva. Uh, you know, he learned in a, in, in a yeshiva katana beforehand, but he ends up going to the Sakhachever, who's uh, not a young man. Uh, I think Sakhachever died, I believe, in 1910, something like that. And he was old and frail. And so our hero would be a young guy, approximately not early teens, and uh, and he learned by and, and he became and he went and learned the Sakhach Shiva, and of course he started he his rocket zoomed because he was a genius in learning, okay, he was a genius in learning, and uh, this is the Polish system, and so since he was very good in learning, so he met a rich girl, that's what you know those rich Balabatim would come to a rebbe like the Sakhach so I guess. I have a daughter, tell me your best guy, and, you know, I'll support him for life, or it's for him 10 years, or this, that, and the other. And that's how it went. The only problem is, the economy at that time was so screwball, that very often it happened, that there's no security. So, including our hero, uh, you, know, you, you marry a rich girl, and five years later, she's not rich anymore. And then the father went bust, you see? Uh, that happened a lot in Jewish history. Still, perhaps it still does. But anyhow... Whatever the case is, he's living in an ideal world because he's a chassid and he's got a rebel like you've never seen. He's a giant Talmud Chacham and he's got a, 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 a rov like you've never seen. You understand? Um, he, he, everything you want, he's got in his world. A Torah and chassidus. And uh, he ended up, you know, like I say, with a father-in-law who's loaded so he can just sit and learn. And uh, at one point, I guess it must have been 25, something like that. So, uh, let's put it this way. He becomes a rub in a small little uh, town. Places you never, these are towns of 20 families, 30 families, 40 families, something like that. 
these are the years before the First World War, um, in which case there was a very large population. Modernity had not ex- had started, and yet some people went off the derech. But prior to the First World War, especially in the areas I'm talking about in central Poland, it was pretty doggone from and pretty doggone Hasidish. You understand? The uh, rove still stayed within the machna, as we would say today. And uh, there's going to be a rabbi in a small town. Europe is full of those, used to be anyway. Hundreds of little small places that, uh, you know, they took for a rove somebody who had been a big Talmud by someone else. And um, you can spend your life like that. And hopefully, I guess, at one point, you move up the career ladder, moving from a town of 30 families to a town of 60 families, and eventually moving to a town of 100 families. You see what I'm saying? You know, you move up the chain. That was the career that one would have predicted for our hero. Now, it didn't exactly turn out that way, because when the Sakhachabra died, which was, I think, again, 1910, I think, so our hero would then be 26 years old. That's young. But it was Eloy, you know. So the Sakhachabra's son is the Shem Mishmol. Uh, I imagine you know that. So the Shem Mishmol said like this, you be the Rosh Shiva now. Okay? My father wore all the hats. I'm going to be the Rebbe and the Rav. You be the Rosh Shiva. Uh, obviously, he knew he's a genius. And second of all, he's totally loyal. No, no, no uh, revolutions over there. Uh, that's his personality. He was a, a, a sworn chassid of the Sakhachabra dynasty. And uh, and you're going to have Rosh Hashiva, who's going to who, who has come up through the boot camp, like I said before. You got to be mechadish all the time. The, you have to have total bikiyas. It's the Polish style in which they didn't learn like in brisk or something like that. But it's a lot of bikiyas in the Rishonim and Achronim, uh, a form that many people never even heard of. And uh, I mean, you know your stuff. What can I tell you? You know, kol kol, like so to speak. Plus the Hasidus. Now listen closely. This means that under ordinary circumstances, our hero, instead of being a rabbi in a small town in Poland and then another one, that's one career path, now had a second career path opened to him by the Rebbe, by the Shemesh Shemol. This career path would be to be the Rosh Yeshiva of the Sakhachavra Yeshiva. So the dynasty would run Chashva Yeshiva. Their students and even other boys from other dynasties could come and learn there. And he could have spent the rest of his life being Rosh Hashiva, and and we're ta- obviously you can tell what I'm talking about. The the our hero is somebody that's uh, all day long is this Torah, so you know that's fine with him. The problem is that 1914, four years later, after it started, World War One hit. Now and World War One hit Central Poland big time. Now most people are not aware of the catastrophic nature of World War One, two. Jewry period and, and Eastern European Jewry in particular. And that's because World War II was so much worse. Since in World War II, Hitler killed everybody in the mass murders. So World War I doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. Like we see, Tsaros, Achronos, Meshachas, and Rishonos. But it's not true. I think I've, I must have mentioned it in some podcast or another. I did a, uh, I did a, uh, a series on this once, a lecture series on my YouTube channel, you know. I don't know if it's up there or not. It could very well be. Uh, and uh, on Orthodox Jewry in, in the First World War, which is a fascinating subject in and of itself. And um, like I say, most people are not aware of it. They've heard of the Second World War. 
but we don't usually know too much about the First World War. You know, you've heard the term, um, six million Jews were killed by Hitler. It's actually not true. It's more like five million or 5.2, depending how you play with the numbers. I don't want to go into this in great detail. I could sometime, but I don't feel like doing it now. It's not six million. But if you add up World War I plus World War II, you get to six million. Uh, because in World War I, for the first time, Jews were subject to the draft ever since the 1800s, including Hasidim. And so they were uh, drafted by millions into the Russian army, the Austrian army, the German army, and so forth. Listen to this. A quarter of a million Jews were killed fighting in World War I. That's an unbelievable number. A quarter of a million Jews were killed fighting in stupid World War I for the Tsar of Russia, for the Emperor of Austria, for the Emperor of Germany, and so forth. In addition to that, another quarter of a million civilian Jews died from malnutrition, from the Magaphis that swept through uh, Eastern Europe as a result of the uh, occupation by the armies and various other things. I don't know, one day, if it, uh, I'll tell my son, maybe I'll put it up on, you, you, can, you can see the uh, series if you're interested in it, if this subject interests you. So that's a half a million, I just said. A quarter of a million and a quarter of a million. These are numbers that never existed in Kleistrel since the time of Bar Kokhba, or whatever, you understand? This way outnumbers Kamelnitsky. Um, I want you to understand the significance of what I'm saying over here, because our hero lives right through that and was hit over the head by a two-by-four, historically speaking, like all the other Jews in Eastern Europe were, uh, as a result of this unforeseen catastrophe. And I repeat, I'm talking about World War I. I'm not talking about World War II. And in World War I, there was no Hitler. And in World War I, the German army was actually good to the Jews. Uh, and in World War I, you know, there wasn't a, a plan to go and, uh, you know, round up all the Jews. In spite of everything I just said, World War I was a catastrophe for Claudius Rowe. And listen to this. Um... Ooh. Uh, I just said half a million Jews were killed. I don't care if it's done without a specific uh, you know, agenda to get the Jews. We never lost those kind of numbers. Half a million is gigantic. And uh, on the other hand, it is balanced, and here you have Hashkacha Pratis, by a strange fact that between 1830 and 1930s, uh, you're going to fly off the seat when I tell you this now. Between the 1830s and the 1930s, the Jewish population in the world quintupled. <laughs> These are facts that are out there, not so just not well known by the average guy. You hear what I said? The, the physical numbers of Jews in the world, and mainly in Europe, mainly in Eastern Europe, increased by a factor of five. From about three million... Three point something million to like 16 million, something like that. There never was in our history that we know of that kind of baby boom, unless you go back to B'nai Yisrael, Parah, Vayeshu, Tzivayir, Vayatzimah, they go like Rish Lakish, that everybody had 60 babies at a time. You know, they managed over there. But you see what I'm saying. So it's just interesting, by the way, isn't it? Just before the Holocaust, World War I and World War II, the Rabban Shalom, oh, what shall I say, fattened the calf. <laughs> He had a whole bunch of new Jews in the world so they could be able to take that blow, even though it's a terrible thing that happened, obviously. So, um, in addition to the half a million I just described, another 100,000 or more were killed right after the First World War, primarily in Ukraine, in the pogroms and civil wars that followed the end of the First World War. Uh, 
It's just a uh, bad stuff. So I just told you 600,000 Jews were killed between 1914 and let's say 1921 or 22. 600,000? That's, uh, you add that to 5.2, 5.3 million from Hitler, you end up with 6 million. You see what I'm saying? Uh, when you get to the 6 million, it's a very complicated calculation there. It's, it's much better if you want to be accurate to talk of 5 million or 5 million plus a little bit. Uh, but like I say, I don't want to get too much into that. You know, like for example, the counting 6 million, the 300,000 Soviet soldiers, Jewish, who died fighting Hitler in World War II. I get it, but that's not a victim of the Holocaust. That was soldiers fighting in the Russian army, under Stalin's army. So you start playing these kind of games. I'm simply leaving this discussion by saying there was a bad time to live, okay? And so for our hero, and Hasidim in general, and from Jews in general, when the First World War broke out, the Russians invaded, the Germans counter-invaded, the Austrians invaded, it was a Horban Shein Kamo, even though they weren't going after the Jews per se, but um, destruction is destruction, bombing is bombing, shooting is shooting, and having mass armies all over the place is terrible for your daughters and whatever, and it happened. So all the Hasidic yeshivas uh, uh, were busted. Just like all the Litvish yeshivas. But in Poland specifically, um, any big Hasidic group was busted. And all the Rebbes had to run away here, there, and the other. I don't think any Rebbe ended up in the course of World War I remaining in his town, because he would have been killed. So the Galicianos ran away to, to Vienna and to Budapest. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. And the Russian ones ran to Minsk and Kremenchuk and that, that kind of thing. And it was just terrible. And so as far as Hasidism is concerned, so Sakhachev, I believe, never returned to Sakhachev, if I remember correctly. The town was destroyed in the fighting, and the Sakhachev Rebbe, and the Sakhachev Rebbe, who, did he die in World War One? I? I think so. Uh, the the Sakhachev, they never recovered in the town of Sakhachev, they relocated elsewhere. And so the reason I'm telling you all this is, he don't have no yeshiva anymore, <laughs> okay? In World War I, the whole yeshiva... It scatters in a hundred directions because, um, you know, life has gone that way. Uh, so every, all your frameworks are destroyed. Shuls were destroyed. Mikvah were destroyed. The cemeteries were destroyed. It was uh, an unbelievable Corbin. That's before Hitler. So as a result, um, our hero, like many people, had to flee to big cities because it was relatively safer, although it wasn't safe there either. And he ended up in Warsaw. Right, uh, waiting out the war over there, and after the war, so now you have a new problem. You're trying to rebuild from the Corbin, um, like happened after World War II. Rebuild from the Corbin. No, after World War II, things are much better. What do I mean? Where did Jewry from Jewry rebuild after World War II? America and Israel, mostly. Right. These are two friendly environments, relatively free of anti-Semitism, uh, democratic countries. That's a fact. Now, let's contrast that. Where did Jewry have to rebuild after World War I? Eastern Europe. It was a new nation of Poland, new Republic of Poland, which was very anti-Semitic. It's the Soviet Union, which will kill any from Jew, certainly any yeshiva. Uh, the economy, again, is very different. In, in a, after the Holocaust, America and Israel... Particularly, America had a good economy, a boom economy, uh, richest country in the world. After World War One, countries like uh, you know uh, Poland, Lithuania, Romania, and all that poor, 
the very hard conditions. And I'll say even more than that. Um, the experience of World War I made a ton of people unfrum because they lost their institutions that kept them grounded within Yiddishkeit and especially within Hasidus. Uh, you don't go to a Rebbe in 1914 and 1918 because he went somewhere else. He's running for his life. Uh, so you don't do it. So you, your yontav is different. Your Shabbos is different. There's no yeshivas. Uh, often there's no synagogues. Often there's not a chance to, uh, you know, have regular Jewish life. Look how everybody's going nuts in the corona time now because they miss a davening here and uh, in Israel. My son's now in Israel in yeshiva. And he got the COVID along with the other guys in his capsule, you know, in... Uh, in what he called Neve um, Yaakov. And, uh, you know, that's what's going on. And that's mild. That's a small pot compared to what they had over there in uh, the terrible times of World War One. So a ton of Hasidic youth went off the derech. And I would say that the Hasidus was cut in half. From 40% of Polish Jewry went to 20. Um, by the time you get to 1920, so after the First World War. So our hero is living through times in which He's saying, what the heck just happened over here? I lived in a Ganadin up to World War I. You had the Sakhachev, you had the Yeshiva, you had the Rebbe, you had people come for, for, for Yontav, the whole Hasidic lifestyle. Um, you know, obviously living under the Tsar Russia wasn't perfect, but still, as Hatzik Gekacht, you know, and the old Yiddishkeit was really pulsating, and now it's all gone. And we have to rebuild, and we have to rebuild under much more difficult circumstances because. Uh, the kids have been detached from Yiddishkeit in an intense way for a long time. Uh, they've been surrounded by Goyim because the armies occupied the place all over the place. Armies are usually very prussed. Uh, uh, many of the girls end up in prostitution. Thing. People don't know this. It was a, a bad news for Eastern European Jewry. I mean, the Frumis families. Uh, and also, you have now new ideas like communism, socialism, Zionism, uh, which made sense in those days to people. And so what are you going to say? Just continue to be a chassid? Like, you know, what, why? And anyway, what's the plan? We're surrounded by anti-Semitism in Poland. What's the future? Bishlam, if you're a communist, you have a vision of future, or a socialist, or a Zionist. If you're just a chassid, what's your vision of future? There's no vision of future. You have a vision of the past. I don't want the past. I, just don't, I don't want to just repeat the past. But that's how people talked. You see? It was in this environment that our hero... Um, became a Robin Kozhiglov, that's how he got his famous name, uh, and was there for 10, 15 years, something like that, 1920s. This is a fascinating era in history, which I say the historians are just starting to sink their teeth into. And um, that is when the Hasidim tried to react to the uh, crisis that I just described, which was very clear, and the hemorrhaging by creative new um, strategies. And uh, among the creative new strategies, I'm not going to be able to do justice to this in today's talk, but still, I'll, I'll at least touch on it. And you see the culture lovers that live in very dramatic times. Uh, one of the, I would say, the main uh, difference, or chiddush, will be in chinuch. And... Um, First of all, for girls, that's when you had the Beis Yaakov. That's number one. So you know what a revolution that was. And number two, uh, for boys, <laughs> to set up yeshivas. And I say yeshivas in the institutional sense, like the Litvaks. 
Uh, this is a relatively new phenomenon. Even the Hasidim prior to the First World War in some places has started to see that the old system of the Hasidim, which was generally you learn in base Medrash by yourself. I've spoken about this many times, and I imagine at least some of you remember what I said. Uh, in the old school, shall we say, um, in the 1800s and before that, the average person didn't go to a place called Yeshiva. If you were interested in learning, you had for it whatsoever, you probably lived in your own little town, you went to a local base medish, whichever one you wanted to, there's nobody, no mashkiach to, to, to watch you and snitch on you, and you learned as much as you wanted to. You want to learn an hour a day, give them to eight. You want to learn 10 hours a day, give them to eight. You want to learn 20 hours a day, you can do that too. You want to learn uh, six hours a day, whatever you want. And who you learn with? Whoever you get. You get a chavrusa, you don't get a chavrusa. You get a chavrusa who's a jerk, you get a chavrusa who's a genius. It's how it was. Are there any shurim? Maybe, yeah, maybe no, you know. <laughs> if there's somebody in town who knows how to give a shear and he's uh, he's good enough to attract the locals to listen to a shear, you got a shear. If not, you don't, <laughs> you see. And even though it's a hop-plop system, it kind of worked for many years. Many gadolis roll came up through this school. They didn't go to yeshiva like you have today. Imamish came up through this school, including many great Hasidic gaonim. You hear what I said? Not Hasidic rabbis, Hasidic gaonim. Came up through that way, and uh, you know, if you if you're self motivated as the expression is today, it works fine. As a matter of fact, it's more like The yeshiva was looked at as an institution that breeds elitism, and it's because of the uh, authority structure. You have to have rashiva and a mashgiach and a snitch system, and they watch what you do. You know, it's, it, all these things that go along with that. There's a plus minus to everything, and the Hasidim traditionally didn't like that, but already. In the late 1800s, this is a whole subject. There's some recent articles on this. Uh, starting in the late 1800s, you start to see in Poland that some of the rebbes, not all, you know, they say, you know, we got to set up a yeshiva uh, like they like the like the Misnagdim have. Of course, with a Hasidic twist um, in this place in Poland, in that place in Poland, but they were all destroyed in the First World War, all of them. And so when the war was over, they all had to start from scratch. And yeshiva is an expensive proposition. You see, when you learn in a basement system, like I said before, there's no overhead. You see? The boy I'm talking about who chooses to learn nine hours a day, chooses to, is a local basement at the age of 12 or 14, if that's what he wishes to do. What's the overhead? There is none. He goes home for lunch if, there, if he has a home, and if there is a lunch. <laughs> if there isn't, there isn't, you know. Uh, he sleeps at home. He lives a block away, two blocks away. That's how life was lived in the old days. There's no overhead. Once you have yeshiva, you got a building, you got to pay salaries, you have a budget. You understand what I'm saying? So this was a formidable problem. In spite of all that, there was a, uh, a what shall I say, a birth, an outburst of new yeshivas in Poland in the 1920s and 30s. Like I said, this is a subject that's just starting to be um, published, particularly in English. In Hebrew, you have studies on this. But the firm stuff is, like, full of misinformation. Uh, but uh, some serious studies are, are, are coming out now on this. And the, 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 the rabbis who were able to, uh, not all chose to do this, but many did. They set up a, the equivalent of what we would call Shiva Katana, Shiva Gadolas. And it's a very interesting subject. And some of them set up networks of yeshivas. Uh, the Kesar Tariyana, the Radomsker comes to mind. The Bavov comes to mind. Uh, Lubavitch started. They were like late on this because the rabbi came there in the 30s. 
the Gare, of course, had their uh, uh, network. Alexander had their network. You know, they, all the Hasidic groups. And uh, it's just very interesting that I would almost say spontaneously, this was response to modernity. We've lost who we've lost. Let's hold on to who we have now. And maybe once we are Mechazic and we have Hasidic boys in the yeshivish environment, and you combine, if I can use the term, the best of the Hasidish with the best of the yeshivish, um, if you have like that, then we'll produce a, 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 a intense and amazing generation, and then maybe they maybe they can reconquer in the next generation the lost souls. Maybe we'll start a big team movement or something like that. That was a hope, and that was the world in which our hero grew up. Now they don't learn Litvish style; they learn in the Hasidic style and the Galicianer style and the Polish style. Uh, but it's very Harifas, you understand, uh, in in its own way, and uh, uh, it's it's what it is. And they also learned Hasidus and Yeshiva. Some did, some didn't. Each place had its own own way of operating. It's just an interesting point. And the best guys were people who knew Hoshas. I mean, literally knew Hoshas. Right? Knew Hoshulchanach. So, from his little town in Kozhiglov, he set up a small Yeshiva. Um, I don't know how he raised the money. And he was considered, um, you know, as we say, a charismatic teacher. And um, he attracted boys, in other words. Uh, but not a whole lot, you get what I'm saying? Uh, because it's a small town that didn't have a lot of money. It's as simple as that. So uh, he spends uh, the 20s and the early 30s in this role. So basically, he rebounded. He started out as a rov in a small little place, nothing. He um, And all of his life, he was a rov. He liked the Rabbanus, and he liked Paskin Shalos. He's a Shalos Jewish guy, that's what he is. Uh, in addition to that, he was a Rosh Hashiva. He liked teaching Talmudim, and he liked the talking, learning, the interplay, the Kash and the Teretz and all that sort of thing. So he clearly had this charismatic uh, personality to make himself a charismatic teacher. Uh, the town he was in is a small place, Kajiklov. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, it's a, it, they can afford to have a small number of students. I don't think they had a large number of students at all. But nevertheless, it doesn't matter um, because... He, he 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 made a name for himself, okay? And finally, his reputation spread as a guide you can write chubas to. You know, notice a real posik, and if you're ever familiar with his chubas, he tries to help you. <laughs> you get it? That's a posik. He, uh, notice, let's put it this way. Let's strip it down to its basics. I need a hetter, man. <laughs> okay? Uh, I'm looking for a hetter. Now, from guys say like this, if there is no hetter, there isn't. Okay, we all agree with that. That's the difference between from and not from. If there's no hetter, there isn't. Okay, but if there is, I need it. And uh, he. And by the way, as a rov, you know, he gives us uh, Hasidish Shalshudas uh, Torah. You know, that whole way of 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 practicing the rabbanus and everything is super Polish. And it's and he lives there. Kajglov is also in the heartland of Poland, in the belly button of Poland. Okay, now um, he ends up moving to a couple other places. Uh, in Sosnovitz, whatever, which actually was the headquarters, if I remember correctly, for one of the Hasidic networks. Maybe it was the Sakhachev one, probably. Let me explain. I told you before, it's just very interesting to study what might have happened if Hitler had not come along. Uh, Poland was uh, destroyed in World War I and started to rebuild in World War afterwards, in the 20s and 30s. Uh, a lot of kids went off to Derek, but a lot did not. 
and there was a a missionary movement, Jewish missionary movement spirit, like we have in our time for the Kiruv movement. Uh, but not Kiruv in the same way you have in America. You go to people in not from, but you have people who are about to become not from want to rescue them. And so they set up these networks of yeshivas. And I would say, by the time Hitler came along, if you talk about the Republic of Poland, in my understanding, I think you had uh, close to 20,000 boys. Um, something like that. 15,000, 20,000 boys learning in some kind of yeshiva environment or another in, in the Republic of Poland, which is a lot. Okay? Now, it's a population of 3.3 million Jews, so it's not a lot relative to that. If it's 3.3 million Jews, how many teenagers are there of yeshiva age? It's a small number, but nevertheless, altogether, there's not a tiny number. And, uh, and the heart of it was our hero. Uh, now, what a lot of these things did was they had these networks of smaller yeshivas, which were feeders to a central yeshiva that was meant for the Eloys. You get it? Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. The Litvaks did this also with Novartic. Novartic was went all over Poland, Hasidic parts and non-Hasidic parts, and they set up Beis Yosef schools, and uh, that's where the stipler comes from. You know, uh, they and and you set, wherever you go, you set up a, a, a little uh, a yeshiva, and hopefully you try to grow it, and your best guys are siphoned off to the headquarters uh, where the, the senior yeshiva is. So uh, Rabbi Kanievsky's father, knows the stipler, he was from a local yeshiva, and then he was siphoned off to, uh, to Bialystok, where he became a Russian yeshiva there because he's one of the best guys from the local branches. And so I think the Kajiglover ended up going to uh, one of those towns like Sosnovitz or whatever for it to, to be, to preside over a yeshiva of the more Elisha types. So basically, you have someone who is at the spitz of the Polish yeshiva world of the Hasidic variety. Okay? Now, uh, at the same time, he's a Rav. And uh, by that I mean he's in Talacha. And I'll say, tell you again, people from everywhere, Bachrim, uh, Hasidim, non-Hasidim, Rodem Shilas, of all different types. And um, like I said before, it's clear to me, you know, if it's, there's, there's a certain way of poskening. It's going to sound funny. I don't mean to be funny. There's a certain way of poskening. You can put together um, heterim, uh if you know what you're doing. And you have a gigantic uh, uh, bikias that people wouldn't have imagined. Um, I think he's that type. Um, obviously, not always, but uh, it, it's clear. I'll, I'll get to that in, in a bit. Now, this all changed in 1934 uh, with the uh, with the, when the mayor Shapiro died in 33, and they needed somebody for the Lublin chief for the Chachmei Lublin. Now, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, the subject of what actually happened in the Chachmi Lublin Yeshiva is not 100% clear to me because a lot of what I read is not true. And there's a lot of hagiography involved in there, which is totally understandable, especially if he was killed or Amei Shapiro and all the rest of it. But um, it's pretty clear that Amei Shapiro had in mind, as part of the trend that I just described, to make like a super yeshiva of some sort or another, and it should be... Um, what should I say? It's in Lublin, in central Poland. It should be able, like like the like the Litvish that we're trying to do in Lithuania, to present a model of Man Malki Rabbonin. So the yeshiva should have the whole outward uh, shine 
of a university, of a high-level institution, of a hush of a place. And that, of course, requires a lot of money to put together. And as everybody knows, Mayor Shabir was a master fundraiser. And he did do it, didn't he? But what exactly he had in mind, he wasn't sure himself. That's, that's how I understand it. Hi. You know, I got interrupted here. It's never happened to me before by uh, a whole bunch of things. And a class I had to give, and a CM I had to go to. It's uh, <laughs> unusual. I'm going to try to pick up where I left off before. I think he was talking about Romeo Shapiro. You know, I was trying to explain, at least I think I was, that in the interwar period, you know, between World War One and World War Two, the Hasidim, a lot of Yiddish was in crisis. A lot of people were going off to there. And one of the ways they figured was, Let's try the Lithuanian thing of a, a formal yeshiva, okay? Now, um, usually, as I said, whole networks were set up, and usually it under the auspices of a particular Hasidic dynasty. <clears throat> I think, as many people know, Ramir Shapiro said he wanted to do something different, and he wasn't 100% sure <laughs> what exactly he wanted to do. I'll tell you what I mean by this. This will surprise you. Uh, in 1923, <clears throat> you know, Ramir Shapiro died young. He was 45. 46, I think many of you know that. So when he was really young in his 30s, uh, I think at the Agoda Convention in Vienna, I believe, which is where you have that a video that everybody's seen online with the Chavetz Chaim. So that's where he came up. He said, what we need is a Dafyomi, and we need a, a, a Yeshiva's Chachmi Lublin. He didn't call it Chachmi Lublin. He didn't know exactly where it would be, but a super Yeshiva. And he had in mind a Volazhin for Poland with the necessary changes. Mutatis mutandis, as they say. Not identical to Volusian, but given the conditions of Poland uh, and the different civilization there, not it'll be Hasidic, it'll be this, it'll be that, you know, not exactly like in Lithuania, but that general idea of super yeshiva. And um, he couldn't get any money for it, he went crazy raising money, and he worked himself to death probably, but he died from cancer anyway, so it didn't matter. He's going to die anyway. But uh, he worked very hard to raise the money. He never did raise the money he needs. I don't think people know this. But eventually he kind of did. He came to America in 1927. And uh, his mom drove himself crazy. And then he built a very fancy building in Lublin. Okay? Uh, it was uh, six stories and 100 rooms, over 100 rooms. And the idea was it should be, let's put it this way, it should knock Harvard out of the park. He said this would be better than a university. Okay with me. Now, all this is great, and the idea generally was he thought that somehow or other, he didn't have an exact plan, he didn't, because it was brand new territory, that it'll be a super yeshiva, of course. Uh, how exactly so? What the tachnit of learning is? How precisely do you make a Hasidic volusion? You get my point? You know, how exactly does that work out? He didn't have clear in his mind. He knew he wanted to do it. And, um, and I'll tell you, you know, it's, it's a long and separate story. Meshavir is a very interesting guy. And, you know, uh, and he himself um, didn't have a particular derech of learning. You have to know who he was. Meshavir was not a Polish. He was born in Bukovina, which is a province over in between Poland and Hungary, near Chernowitz. Uh, that's a whole type of Yiddishkeit by itself. And, uh, you know, the original Rebbe, when he escaped from Russia in the 1800s, probably never did that story. I have a, 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 a video about that. So he ran away from the Tsarist Russia in the middle of the night, and, you know, he ended up in Bukovina, in Sadagar, as they call it, which is near 
the big city of Chernovitz. He's, I know, I know I'm, I'm using geography, geography terms you don't know what I'm talking about. Just take it from me, he wasn't in Poland. And uh, there was she was there. Ramey Shapir was indeed a Saudi Gerachas, Charkov is from the Rizhener dynasty. And he was he born to a millionaire family, and he married a millionaire girl. He was born rich, and he, and he uh, married rich. So Ramey Shapir himself was raised in the lap of luxury, so to speak, and never had to go and beg and borrow for money. It was not in his character. And uh, uh, and he was a bar hockey. Of course, he turned in a great going, as we know, and a super talented speaker, and this and that and the other, and a man of great vision. And he knew when he wanted to make the shiva. He didn't know exactly what the what the tzura is going to be. Now, I'm actually telling you something very interesting. <laughs> you know, when you make a yeshiva, like, what exactly is it? Now, if you're like in Baltimore, Rabbi Rudin, he said, I want to be like Sobotka, you know, something like that. Or tells it will set up something I want to be like in tells. No, you already have a tzura and you're just trying to copy and adapt it to local conditions. But here he was trying something that didn't exist within memory, which is, a lo- or ever, you know, a big fancy yeshiva. Obviously, he's only going to want the best guys. So that's one way of making an elite yeshiva, make it hard to get into, you know, with the bechinas and all that. And uh, But then what exactly should it look like? What exactly should the yeshiva be? And he himself was a genius. And so finally he put it all together and, and they they built the yeshiva and dedicated, started in 1930 in the middle of the depression. And uh, they had guys, of course, and his charisma and so forth, and people wanted to get in. But then what? He didn't really know how to get a hot hole together. It's it's interesting. You know, in other words, who should be the Rosh Hashivas? And I can tell you right now, he wanted and he needed badly. Um, what shall I say? People who were outstanding Magad Shears, not somebody to be a Rosh Hashiva. Do you get what I'm saying? I think you know, for example, most of the listeners, I imagine, that, let's see, um... In Rod and the Russia, the Chavetz Chaim was the Russia Shiva, but uh, the Granat, you know, no, so he he would he was the star Magachir, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, uh Shkup was the star Magachir in Tells. Uh, when I was in there, he saw it was Rabbi Kalevsky. You understand? The person was especially. Here's a good example. The Panovich was ahead of Panovich, but he who who was the star Magachir, you know, to really get the guys in and and, and provide the derech, you know, Rabbi Shmuel uh, Rizovsky, right? That kind of thing I'm talking about. So, Ramea Shapiro had no experience in Ichi, but he never went to Ichi in his life. He came, as I say, from a rich background. He learned by himself, you know, in the old-fashioned way that I was talking about. In him, everything came together. And Baruch Hashem, he succeeded, you know what I mean? In being rich and in being a, a, a claw leader and a gone and a big chassid. So, in other words, it all worked for him. That doesn't mean that's a, a derech to show somebody else. And, like I said, what's shot with him and learning? Like all these guys I'm talking about, if they didn't have a shiva background, they didn't work out a particular mahalach shitatit, it's eclectic. All these gedolim and big people I'm talking about, especially the ones that learned in the base manner system, it's eclectic. They picked up a little of this, they picked up a little of this, maybe somebody along the way developed his own little kanesh. Um, this is how it went. Uh, and that's as opposed to somebody's learning it, for example, today in Brisk, you understand? Or years ago, do you say somebody's learning in tells? I mean, it's a Derek Halim, whatever there, you know, see? One like that. And he wanted to create a super yeshiva, but how exactly are you going to do it? No, this what will be the Derek Halim? And he didn't know. And it's very famous that he looked and tried to find the star market shears, and I don't know why, but it never worked. 
and when he was started, you know, he was the, the he got elected Robin Lubin, and he made the yeshiva over there, and he himself gave the shiurim, but he was also Rav, and a call to her, you know, he had time for all that, even though he very much wanted, and he put as much time as, as he could, but he wanted a star market share. Now, he worked his head off, and he died young, you know, in the third year of the yeshiva, something like that. This is all, excuse me, very famous. He died tragically. And uh, he couldn't find what he was looking for. It's, it's, it's funny to me, you know. And there are stories. I don't know if the stories are true because there's so much baloney out there. Uh, give me an example of a wonderful piece of baloney, which will work very well for the Kaja Glover. Uh, well, I'm growing up in Baltimore. I always heard, we used to have a person here who died in 1958, before my time. Uh, Rabbi Forschlager. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't heard of him. He's a Nechbal Akim, he's a Godol Hador, but nobody ever heard of him. You understand? Unless you did. And he was actually a buddy of our hero because they're both born in the same year and they both ended up at the same time by the Sachachar, by the Abner Nazar. I don't know much about their personal relationship, but they had to be buddies. And they were there to start pupils at the end of the Abner Nazar period. And, uh, but, you know, you can compare and contrast. And that's very useful in history. Uh, when you have biographies, particularly if you compare and contrast personalities, it's uh, revealing. You understand? It's revealing. And, uh, you know, Plutarch does that with the lives of the, uh, the classic historian from the ancient times who wrote about the lives of the famous Greeks and Romans. He has a biography of a Greek and then of a famous Roman, then he does compare and contrast. So you can do that in, 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 in Jewish stuff also, in Torah stuff also. Here's two guys who were from uh, Belly Button, Poland, and they both ended up by Davni Nazar, and they both were big Makorov to him, and they're both super geniuses. But one had a personality, clear, clearly, for a claw to her. He was extrovert. I'm talking about our hero. Uh, he wanted to be a rogue. He served in the Rabbanas. He's a Paisek. He was a, a Rosh Hashiva, a yeshiva that he put together himself. You know, he handles with the boys. That's the nature. The other one, Ralph Forschlager, who may have been bigger than him in learning. Uh, you don't know who I'm talking about. He was a big person. I'm seeing a big, big, big person. Uh, you know, you go look it up. They wrote a biography of him a couple years ago. Uh, a nephew of his, whatever. A friend of mine. He's the greatest girl you never heard of. He didn't want to be a rogue. He didn't want to be a Rosh Hashiva. Uh, he ended up in Baltimore. He just sat and learned. You know, he didn't want to start anything. Uh, he was a tzaddik and so forth. But he's not one to build a Yeshiva, to give Shiwarm every day in that kind of way. And they, I used to hear that when the Mayor Shapiro died, this is the story in Baltimore I grew up with. When Mayor Shapiro died, so they were looking for a replacement and they offered it to him, but his family said no. However, I looked at the biography that was recently published by his nephew and friend of, of Forschlager, and they say instead, if I understand this right, that before the yeshiva started, when Mayor Shapiro came to America in 1927, he came here once, raised money for the yeshiva. He didn't do that great of a job financially. He came back with $50,000, which was money in those days, but not what he planned. He planned to come back with half a million, you know. Um, and so when he visited Baltimore, he already saw who a four-shugger says, you come back with me. And um, in Poland, before you were poor, your family was starving, which is why you came with your family to Baltimore. They had seven children, four of whom died from starvation in World War One. You know, times where, I tell you, people don't realize how bad World War One was. But right, Forschlager's family was already Americanized, and they said, Pop, 
people <laughs> emigrate from Poland to America. Nobody emigrates from America to Poland, and it didn't happen. Um, so that could could be. You keep this in mind because of our story. Now, um, it, it, what it says in the biography is that he said, take my friend to Kaja Glover, which did not happen. But uh, it, it's interesting the way the stories are spun. The point I'm getting at is that the yeshiva of Chachmi Lubin had a tremendous chitonius, but it wasn't. It was a lack of Clark Light in the panemius, and by that I mean in in the exact mahalach the yeshiva should be. They knew it should be high level learning, but what exact style it should be, and you know, it isn't like Ruff cooked in some degree that Rav uh, uh, talked in huge terms, uh, you know, brilliant long terms which are not easy to make happen. He said, I want the Amkus of Lita, the Harifas of Poland, he means belly button Poland, and the Bekias of Galicia. Again, the Amkus of Lita, the Harifas of Poland, and the Bekias of Galicia. That's a tall order. <laughs> you know, say, I don't know if that's going to happen. And who's the one that's going to do it? And he didn't have the time. And he himself, like I say, never learned by the Litvishi, never learned by the Galicianish. He wasn't that type. He was his own, his own Mizug, as you could say. And, you know, if you're a Mizug, it's, you can't really hand that over as a sheet to Talmudim. Think about what I'm saying. <laughs> if you're the result of your personal lifetime experience and not of a Maslul, it's not so easy to give over. So those of you who understand Yeshivas will understand what I'm talking about. Maybe those who are listening that don't may be a little bit confused what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm mentioning this for a reason. So when he made the Yeshiva, he didn't have a staff, Mayor Shapiro. It was a big problem. And the person he brought along, Rav Shimon Engel, was weird because Rav Shimon Engel was a tremendous goan and all the rest of it. But he was a big makubal, and he hated the he hated the Chachmei Lubin Yeshiva. He said that it's the Yeshivas are an example of the Gaiva that the Balshanta was opposed to, and it's going to breed elitism, and it's uh, totally negative, and Rameish uh, of Mizwell but the whole place is a disaster. Well, then why did you pick him? And why did he accept? And he started by giving Shurim, but then most of the time the Shurim, he did Kabbalah. <laughs> and you know how that works. Half the class were turned on, half the class was turned off. Mayor Shapiro threw up his hands. He said, oh, you won't be the Magad Shir. Instead, you'll be the um, Mashkiach. Uh, so what was his Mashkiach uh, Shmuzin? All in Kabbalah. And, uh, you know, the early Hasidus and the Yeshiva is no good. It was a, a crazy story. And um, he was already thinking of firing, but then he died, Ramey Shapiro. And when the yeshiva... So notice that she went off to a brilliant start. They got the best guys, you know, with those famous bechinas, the end of 100 blood or whatever. And uh, everything's, you know, theoretically should be gewaldic. But he, it, it, contrary to what you think, he didn't have it set up the way he wanted. Which is, he wanted to have a Roshmul Rizovsky. He wanted to have a Granat. You, you get what I'm saying? He wanted to have like a like a, I don't know, you know, a, a, a fantastic Magashir, the way Reb Chaim was in Vlazhin, you know, that 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 kind of thing. Uh, and he wanted one or two of them, actually. And it didn't quite happen. And if you get the smartest guys together, you need somebody like that who can be a role model for them in, in, in Machshava and how to think in Hezber and Svar Yishara. It could be a Polish Derech, it could be a Gadsianish Derech, it could be a Litvish Derech, but it's got to be a Derech and then you inspire the Talmudium to focus their kochas on that. You know, you set an ideal, as it were. So uh, it didn't happen. And um, 
By the way, the Chachmi Lumi was funny. He went there for four years, he got smich already. You understand? And if he got two more years, he got hetero raw. You can could, you could go out and be a rabbi. So, you know, this Shimon Engel didn't like it. He says it's become a, a, a factory for rabbis, like a university. It was weird. When Ramir Shapiro died kind of suddenly, see, she was all confused. Who takes over? This Rabbi Shimon Engel, who didn't get along with the, and whose derech b'chalal in Yiddishkeit was very, very different than that Ramir Shapiro, he took over, and he was there for seven, eight months, and he made it a terrible thing because he was talking about the super Hasidic, super Kabbalah. I mean, really. And the learning went down. Half the yeshiva was turned on, and they got into the Kabbalistic stuff. The other half was totally turned off. Guys weren't learning anymore, leaving around, wandering around, you know, so forth. And Ramesh Shapiro didn't have any children. So when he died, the place was like orphaned in the sense of who's in charge. And this real Shimon guy, he was not what the Hanhola had in mind. What Hanhola? Immediately when the yeshiva lost its, its leader, when he died young, so uh, those who were important people in Polish Jewry, they said, we have to save the yeshiva, you know. It, it's a shame what happened to Ramesh Shabir, but we have a building, we have a, 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 a place. Uh, it's beautifully uh, located. We got to raise money, and we have Talmudim. We have Talmudim who want to stream in and learn here. We can make this into what Meir Shabir wanted, but we got to happen. And so, some of the biggest Hasidic rabbonim in Poland came together, and they became the Shulchan Aruchani, like we would say today, the Vadachinach, you know, for the yeshiva. And the first thing they did was fire this other guy. It was there, Rav Shimon Engel, which, as I say, half the guys in the yeshiva went along. The other half of the guys in the yeshiva protested, and they rioted. And they had to call the cops. There was a guy who was told to leave. Anyone leave. They had to call the police in there. So it was a balagan and a half. And she was Chachmi Lublin. Okay? The reason I'm telling you that is, so who would like to take over in that? It's walking on eggs. And they tried, the Han Hala tried to bring in somebody who they thought would be a Tsugipast, Rosh Hashiva and Magad Shir, to take the place for Mayor Shapiro and make it a Yeshiva Yeshiva, you know? Get one or two big market shears, and you know have have it go, uh, you know, in go in, in the right derech. Well, um, they brought in one guy, and it didn't work because the Talmudim said he's he's a big kamchacham, but he, he's not a good market shear. He doesn't have a good derech hazbara. You understand what that means? Uh, you have to know how to say it over. They brought in. I'm not going to say names. They brought in another person, and he had a you know. He had a good Hasbara, but you notice know, he was a what we would call today a nerdy type guy. He didn't have the personality that you need to be a Hevermont of the right sort to inspire the guys. I'm talking about in learning. And and they brought it like a third one. You see what I'm saying? So anybody who, who applied for the job or was willing to take the job ran into the problem of how do you get yourself accepted in this environment when everybody says like this, there will never be another Amir Shapiro, which is true. And they never should have gotten rid of Shimon, or, or they should have, or whatever. And you get involved in Shiva politics. Uh, you know what I'm saying? So it was crazy. This is where our hero comes in. After they tried several candidates, and it didn't work out, finally turned to R.U.C. Frummer, who I think was in Sosnovitz, as I said before, as we call him the Kasha Glover. And they say like this, listen, we heard about you. First of all, you're Hasidish. Second of all, you're a gone. Third of all, you have long experience with guys. You've been a you've been a Rosh Hashiva, you know, in 
Kozhikov, and before the war in that other place, in Sakhachov, and, and other towns. In other words, you're, as we would say today, you're an experienced mechanic of the highest order. By that I mean not a mechanic of a fifth grade, you're mechanic of bismedrish. You know, you know how to give a shear. It's a Avni Nezer type shear. It's Polish, very Kharifis. It's not the literature style, but big deal. It's very, uh, it's the Polish style. And you're clearly a gong. Everybody said that. And you have the right personality. This is where it's interesting to me. If you read his Sefer, which I'll talk about in a second, if I remember, you see in the beginning, this is very famous, actually, those who know about it, that he says, I learned from our Rebbe's Dekar thing in life is Simcha. Which means, this is my interpretation. I think I, I have this right. I can only tell you what I think whenever I do a podcast. He said, learning has to be fun. See what I said? Has to be fun. It's not something you do because of Mitzvah Talmud Torah. It's not something you do because the Rebbe will give Nachas Ruach and all that kind of stuff. It's got to be fun. Now, you could disagree with me. And this is an issue, an interesting issue in Torah Machshava. But his Rebbe said the same thing. I'm sure many of you listening here will be aware, if not everybody, of his Rebbe, the, the Sachachshava. I'm talking about the Egli Tal. What's the famous intro to I think everybody knows this. What's the intro, famous intro to the Egli Tal? It's like this. The Sachachshava is like this. Is learning supposed to be fun? Or does that take away from Torah Lishma? Did you ever hear that? I'm sure you've come across that. Right? What if you like learning? Is it, well, let's say it's fun. Is that take away from Torah Lishma? Or do you have to say like this? I'm not doing it for fun. If I get any personal hano out of it, it's Magarea from the Lishma. And the Egli Tal, the Sachachshava is like this. Wrong. The Torah should be fun. That is Torah Lishma. When you get into it to the degree that it's, you, you, you like doing it and it's fun and this gives you the simcha and, you know, this is great. And so, you know, a person says, honestly, without any baloney, you know, I had a better time learning today than you had when you went to the party, when you, you had when you went to vacation. That, you enjoyed the vacation, no problem with that. I have no time is on you, right? Great, you went to a luxury hotel, no problem. I had more fun here learning. Now, not everybody's built that way, let's be honest. Raise your hand if you're like that. Not everybody talks like that, okay? Although I suspect people who give shiurim, uh, these dafyomi guys, like our sponsor, and I imagine the reason they do is fun, okay? And the Avni Nezer, the Eglital, says, that's the highest madre, that is the Torah Lishma. And so this is how our hero was raised, the Kasha Glover. And he more or less says that. He said, this I got from Rabbeim. So the reason I'm saying it is, when they brought him to the to the, to the Chachmi Lubin, he's a Chavraman, he's got a good personality. I can just imagine, I wasn't there obviously, but the way he writes, the way he talks, and the way people remember him, you know, a sheer by him was fun. What do you hold? Anybody got a kasha? Let me hear what this guy has to say. You know, that, you know a lot of banter back and forth in the Kharifas, in the Pilpul. You get it? So it's not a sheer by him, I'm sure, was not a lecture. It's a one-way street. It's not like that at all. But it's highly interactive, and he was a, just a natural to encourage the guys and back and forth. So the point of the matter is, he turned out to be the Goldilocks. You understand? You know, he's the one who the students ended up liking, and the Han Hall liked. The Kajag lover. He end, so he became Drashib over there, because in him you had, as I said before, first of all, a gone. Second of all, he knows how to give a shear. Third of all, he's got that fun thing, so Guys like that. You need that to be to, to have charisma as a magachir, 
as a Rosh Hashiva. He was a Chassid. He was from beyond belief. Okay? You can have fun in learning, still be very from. You know, he used to take a Chatzos. <laughs> you know, he's a real Chassid over there. I mean, the real thing. Uh, but it can be fun. Not to take a Chatzos, but I'm saying the learning. Uh, so you know what I mean? No, he was a good package. It was a good Shidduch. So they tried a lot of Shidduch, and that's why he was like a Goldilocks. The bed wasn't too long, the bed wasn't too short, but by him it came out just right. And this is what he did for the rest of his life, meaning, this was like 1935, it took a while for the yeshiva to go through all these other candidates, and each one, you know, six months here, six months there, and to turn out that it was not a good shidduch until they finally got him. And when he agreed and he came over there and the students liked him, he was in until the Holocaust killed everybody. So from 1935, something like that, to 1940, the, the war, as you know, starts in September 39, and Hitler took over the country, one, two, three. So already by October 1939, Lublin is under the Germans, and, you know, all that terrible stuff. But for those four or five years, uh, he had a good run. You know what I'm saying? He had a good run. And uh, he, st- mind you, not only was he Hasidish, he was a Hasid, meaning he was a chassid of the Sachachavers. You know, when, when the Avni Nezer died, he was a, a chassid, like humble and all that, with that Shem Shmuel. When the Shem Shmuel died, it was the next one. And when the next one died in the 1920s, it was the next one. He went once to Israel. I read this once. In 1935, I guess, or something like that. Right around the time he became Bathsheba in Chachmin, Lublin. And uh, with the Sachachav Rebbe, because the Rebbe is visiting Palestine. And he wanted to see it. He met with him. You know, for a trip. Unfortunately, he should have stayed. But who knew? Who knew? And uh, I'm talking about in 1935. And so, therefore, uh, he brought his particular style of learning, which was the Central Polish, like called the belly button Poland uh, style of learning. And that is what you see now in the news. You know, I mean, those like Nechalkas Yov, you know, those types, or Forschlager Swarm, very Kharif is dick. It's a Kashis, it's Terutsim. You come up with Hamsos all the time, uh, highly unusual Chedushim. Uh, Sometimes really unusual chedushim, which I imagine is why some of the magadshirs, uh, I mean the Dafyon people like him, because uh, all kind of all kind of things. Now, what's interesting is that he's someone who's giving a lamdushashir Polish style, known as Kharifis, lamdushashir um, probably four or five times a week, and they had this, and the chachmi was the Polish Hungarian style which he had weekly bechinas, not like the literacy she was. So he had a full plate, okay? But, to me it's just interesting that in 1939, he published his uh, response, his Shals and Shubas. It was kind of interesting. And this, as I say before, is very unliterish, because in Lithuania, the, the, the Rosh Hashiva, who's clearly a Rosh Hashiva, doesn't publish Shals and Shubas unless they're Shals and Shubas, which is Lombus disguised as Shals and Shubas. Sometimes you find by the literature they call it Shalas and Shubas, but you know, it's the, the Shaila is answer me this Rambam. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, for him for this and I'm talking about everyday real life things. And uh, this he published as the Eretz Tzvi just before the Holocaust. So, in that regard, you could say, if you understand what I mean, he got lucky. Because if he waited another year, all this would be lost and burned and destroyed and all that. And we wouldn't know anything about him. I mean, we'd know about him, but you know what I mean? He wouldn't have hit the charts. Because clearly, his the the knowledge, at least as far as I know, I'm not Hasidic, so maybe people have some swarm of his Divri Torah and all that. 
But to get out there in the broad belt, uh, it was the Chuvis. Okay? Uh, the see, uh, what's it called? The, the Eretz Tzvi. It's the Chuvis. And I have to tell you the truth. Uh, I don't have to tell you the truth, but I'm going to tell you. Uh, I first heard of him uh, 30 years ago, something like that. Uh, you'd be, you're going to laugh at what I'm saying. In the, uh, in the old Hebrew College Library, they used to have, at that time I didn't own them, the books of Zevin, and later I bought it in Israel. And Rav Zevin, who you know I'm a, a big chassid of, uh, has a volume in, uh, among his many books of book reviews of Shalos and Shubas. Only Zevin can do this. It's unbelievable. It's like the New York Times book. I'm serious. Like the New York Times book review, book reviews of Shalos and Shubas. And I went through it because he writes so well and so clearly it's, it's a machaya. And these are book reviews that Rav Zevin uh, published in newspaper, in the Mizrahi newspaper, actually, Hot Sofer, way back in the 30s and 40s and that kind of thing. Then later in 1950, in late 50s, I believe, so he put them all together in a single volume. And one of them, and they're brilliant, because Zevin is a brilliant essayist. And one of them was there to me. I remember this. And then I said, who is this? A Kajikov? I don't know. Interesting. And if you're interested at all in the person I'm talking about today, you got to get a hold of the uh, book review, about five, six, seven pages of Zevin, of the Shalos and Shubas Eretz Suites, in this cipher called Sofri Musform. It's probably on the Hebrew, excuse me, it's probably on the Hebrew books online, probably. And uh, he, uh, I don't know what year he published it, because he talks about the Mechaber being dead, so it must be either during or right after the Holocaust. And it's, it's Gavaldic. The, uh, and, you, and you get their bird's eye view of who the Mechaber was, specifically in terms of the Sefer that he wrote. And in the inimitable Zevin style, he immediately says that, um, you know, the book is organized mostly Archaim and, and uh, more than any other p- part. And he would, he said, I would classify them into uh, four types. Really, it's three, but Zevin was a Zionist. And one is Yeshuvi Minhagim, the other one is Shalos Mechudashos, the third one is Shalos Eretz Yisrael, and the fourth one is Stam Shalos. And then he goes in and give examples of that. And when he says over here, Yeshuvi Minhagim, this is very well known. Uh, the Kajak lover is, these are Shalos that he got from people all during his career. And he says clearly in the introduction that I've reworked them and edited them, so sometimes they're not exactly the way they were sent to me all the time. Some are and some aren't. And this is always a problem for historians in dealing with responsive literature. Uh, this is what we call a methodological and epistemological problem. And that is me, a historian. If I read something in the Chuba, how do I know it's true? Not only do I, how do I know it's true, how do I know the shiloh is the way the person said it is? Maybe he reworked it to, uh, you know, art scrollize it or change the names for certain reasons or give it a twist here and there. This is a very good question. I'm speaking now from a scientific, methodological, historical thing. If I see something in the Note if I see something in Suvasarajra, how do I know what I'm seeing is transparent? Uh, maybe it was changed. And it's true, by the way. And our Machaber today, our hero, says, some of these shalos are not exactly manufactured, but I have seven or eight questions, and I rolled them into one to make it easier to write about it. So... The way the child is asked is not exactly the way he got it. 
So just keep that in mind. Having said that, it's a WDUA, and here again is a, it's, it's something that I encountered many, many years ago, that um, one of the things he's into is uh, saying, you know what your parents and your grandparents did is actually not wrong. Uh, I experienced this, and maybe you did also. He grew up in a house, FFB, he grew up in a house, and they used to do this or that on Shabbos, on Yontif, and Kashrus, this and the other. Okay, that's how you were raised. And then you go off to Yeshiva and start reading books called Svarim. And then you see, you know, you're, at, you're not supposed to do this. And you see that that's actually not allowed. And this thing is also, and that thing is this. And they say, oh my God, what kind of house did I grow up in? You know, when I was young, we did this, and my mother told me to do that, and my father this and that and the other. You get what I'm saying? And then, if you get older, and you read more, become more widely than just the reading the Chayolam or the Ketchukon or the Mishabur or something like that, you see, oh, this and this thing, actually, the Chazanish says you can do this, and the other one says you can do that, and the other one says you can do this and that and the other. I'm just, I'll tell you something off the top of my head, you know, just, I'm, I'm just sitting here bloviating. Uh, now, the, I, I'm making this up. Really, in my family, we always have four cups of wine at the Seder. Uh, but what about the grape juice? So, uh, uh, let's say it was, let's say I grew up with, with the grape juice. So, and people say, well, you know, it's not really right. I mean, okay, if you definitely need it, but it's better do with the wine. And then you wonder, so when my parents were modernish, that they all had the grape juice. And then, you read Pisces, it was actually the Chazanish used the grape juice, and the uh, Briscoe used the grape juice, and this one, that, and the other one. All of a sudden, you say, I guess, I guess my parents were from after all. Do you get what I'm, you, you hear what I'm saying? Do you get the part? And so, I told you already a story what happened with me in the Mara once. Rabbi Rudin, I had, you know, these kind of stories. You see a lot of this in the air. It's very charming, actually. It's very charming. He says, you know, this custom that people do, it's actually, it can be defended. There's, there's a basis for it. Um, uh, here's a very famous one uh, that I heard of when I was young also. Uh, you know, with the, with the Shalchmanis. What if you forget to give the Shalchmanis in time? You give it after, you know, at nighttime when, when Purim's over. Apparently, a lot of people used to do that in the old country. And the Eretz has a whole thing. Well, really, you can you can justify it. Uh, you know, based on this far and this far, and he's very harifas in, in the Hamsos that he comes up to defend these ideas. Um, what about people who daven late? Well, like, like the Hasidim. How do you, how do you justify that? Uh, you know... Uh, people with the small chitches, I remember, yeah, something. Uh, in other words, hear, hear closely what I'm about to tell you. From Jews who do things that don't sound exactly like it's in conformity with, shall we say, to use modern terminology, with the Mishnah Bura. You, you follow? Um, are they right? Are they wrong? Does everybody following a wrong minhug? Uh, and he always is saying like this, I'm not telling you to do this, but those who do it have what to rely on, and they certainly do. That's, that's a very interesting way of trying to, to say the Hanhaga the people have, the, the Pasha de Yidin, our Bubbies and Zadies and all that, who are good people, they're not actually making a mistake. What they're doing is, is grounded in, uh, in sound halachic theory and in Talmudic theory. And his efforts to, to, to justify them are rather charming uh, uh, and, and, and very, uh, as they say, charifistic. Now, uh, this is a wonderful quality. What do I mean? I told you before. 
somebody's looking at me and say, you know, my town, everybody does this and this and this. The uh, Derek Tzvi will say like this, well, I'm sure they're following, you know, the opinion of the Chassam Sofer, if you're Medayik from this, that, and the other, and you add this for the Tosas here, and that thing over there. And then the guy doesn't feel so bad. Now, he's not saying go and do it. He's saying those who do it have what to rely on. Avada Kavist, he'd probably say like this, have a big tzitzis, you understand? Avada Kavist, I can tell you before anything, he delivered his shachmanus one time. And remember, he has a thing, can you use a cotton to carry for you on Shabbos? Which, very common. And he goes, well, then they used to do it. You understand? I was raised like that. They used to do it. And, uh, you know, he'll, he'll show the defense of that. And, uh, I, I mean, a lot of things. The best one is, can you, <laughs> listen, you'll be, you'll be shocked what I'm about to tell you. He will say, he'll tell you how it's okay to watch TV on Shabbos, provided it was turned on before Shabbos. Now it's before the TV, so it's the radio. He'll tell you how you can listen to the radio on Shabbos. He's not telling you in Poland in 1929, go listen to radio on Shabbos. But those who, whatever reason, find themselves doing it or whatever, uh, so the question then becomes, in, 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 in nitty-gritty, halachi question, is this okay? I don't say it's okay. Now, this shows you, he lived at a time with a very from Olam that he's dealing with. He wasn't worried that some Avi Weiss guy is going to take it and run with the ball. This is what we're worried about nowadays. If you give a you can really find the answer for anything. I know it sounds funny I'm saying so, but I'm talking about a Lamdan. A Lamdan Muvak, a Gon, can find the answer for anything. You stitch this together with that. And I do mean that, I heard of. I remember saying, if you look in Sharmitz and Malocha, you see that a lot when the Machaber wants to. He can put together all kinds of head term. You see it in the Rishlom uh, Zarabach with the defense of the uh, exile on Shabbos, you know, in the Shemir Shabbos Kolchaza. You, you, you can do it. But the, the, the things like this, should you do it or should you not do it? Nowadays, in the time you and I are living, it's dangerous because we have all these left-wingers and they'll, whatever you say, they'll use as justification to go farther and to make real trouble. You understand? So the Das Torah is shtika yafa, you know, don't go, don't go and explain it. Um, but he didn't live in that environment. He lived in very from Hasidic Poland, even though Hasidism and all this was in a certain crisis because of World War One and the aftermath. But nevertheless, things were pretty doggone from and the Shiva movement that he was part of was trying to make a rebound. And we, you and I will never know, had Hitler not happened, would the Frum come back kicking and screaming? In other words, like gangbusters? Or would they have never succeeded in, re- in recapturing the 20% of the population they lost, and maybe even more? That's a great question. There is ve- I, that is an assignment I would give a graduate student uh, to do a paper on. Because there is a material that can argue both ways. Uh, but this... Business the Rav Zeman calls Yeshuvim and Hagim uh, is a wonderful part of the uh, of his house and Shuvas. And again, like I said before, you can compare and contrast. To me, to me, he's you, he's the opposite of Chayyonim because the Chayyonim is always saying like this: what the Hamunam does is all wrong, and these guys are dummies, and uh, I'm Ratzim, and unfortunately that's the way it is, and the people shouldn't do it this way, and I'm going to tell you how you should do it. Whether it's in Hilchah Shabbos or Pesach or Kashrus or this and the other, and then the Tishabov, the Hamonam is doing it wrong here and davening there, and so forth. And then you see the Hasidic, I think you see the Kashrus lovers say, no, actually, what they're doing can be justified. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What they're doing is based, as I said before, on a tosis. What they said, based on, on a Yisod, and a lot of times he does like a Yisod, based on a, a Diak or something like that. And Rabzevin 
is uh, is really wonderful uh, here. And let me open the book here. One second. Don't go anywhere. If you look, Rabbi Zeman says, through this farm, down the ages, you'll find here and there that the Mechaber will justify uh, a, a local practice. Even though, as I said before, it doesn't seem to conform what, what you and I today would call the Mishnah But not like this guy. Not like the Aristotle. Uh No one takes it on so many of them. And you see... It's usually the 1910s and 20s and 30s he's writing in. And he's trying to help, the, he's the, like, like I told you before, the friend of the little man, right? Or perhaps I should say the friend of the local Rav. Because he's trying to help out what he can to be Miyashev, that it shouldn't be a fight, and that don't classify people as Machal Shabbos, it's not firm and all the rest of it. Now, I repeat, there's no question that his Lachal option is different. But the world isn't composed of chachil options. And Shalos and Shubas rarely deal, except perhaps nowadays, with, uh, you know, Brain Brock. But Shalos and never deal with chachil options. They're always dealing with Bidiyavid situations. And the question is, what will the market bear? And it's a wonderful uh, safer in, the, in, in that particular regard, at least in my opinion. All I would give you is my opinion. Uh, you should read, Rabbi Zeman has pages of this, and it's all wonderful stuff. It's all, it's all and, he, and he gives you some of his svaras. And all the rest of it, uh, you know, people wash the, they don't do, negle, the, the, the island doesn't do Negelvasa right, and uh, how come women don't daven, and uh, uh, I don't know, you know, one thing after another. Um, uh, <laughs> they're, they're really cute. Um, now, whew, and he says, uh, you know, I see thousands of people do this, and that's why I want to, I want to make it, that they're not, they're not all wrong. I myself became interested in the Eretz because I'm a coming. Oh, good 25, 27 years ago more. If you're a coming, you have a problem flying to Israel. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't know this. Those of you who are not going to give a darn. It's not a gay to you. Because from time to time, you have LL issues and other issues. And I'm not talking only about, first of all, one issue has to do with when they carry a body on the, on the, on the plane. That's one thing, the coffins. Those of you not going, don't even bother with this. And the second is, if you fly over grapes, like uh, years ago they were flying over in Cholon, the Jewish cemetery, and it's not so posh, you know, because it could be oh hell. And uh, what do you do over there? I remember somebody referred me, uh, a friend of mine in Baltimore, long ago, he said, look at there, Tzvi. He has this question in 1939, can you fly in Europe and you're flying over cemeteries or whatever? And he said, I'll give you seven hectares. <laughs> now, you can look at that two ways. Uh, anybody who needs seven eterim shows it's all shvach. Or you can say like this, he should have had to. If one falls, he got the other. And he meant it, like I say, in the best way possible. Again, it's clear from, if you read the tshuva, he would prefer that the person go on an airplane or not go on an airplane that doesn't fly over a cemetery. Right? If it's possible. But if you're asking about the person who has to do it, you know, can you be, can you justify it? And he said yes. I remember it was to a rabbi in Switzerland. Uh, I think it was a Talmud of his. And um, that's my approach. This has been quoted a lot of times. I tell you the truth. I sat down now to do it. I just opened the Bashar Metziyon Malacha. I said, I know I remember I seeing it over there on the Bashar Metziyon Malacha about Hilchus Tumas Kohanim because that's what I have to deal with. I'm a coin. And uh, it wasn't there. I, I can't remember where I saw the Eretz Tzvi first brought down. 
but it's a very, very nice uh, tshuva. Yeah. Like I say, you have heter derech rishon, heter derech sheni, shlishi shvi, and so on and so forth. And Rav Zevin, I remember, has what he calls weird shilas. And one of them was, that there's a guy who's in the hospital in Poland, I'm not a cardiologist. I have to ask my friend, Dr. Insel. He said they found, when they did x-ray, I guess, his heart is in the wrong place. It's not on the left side, it's on the right side. And does that mean there he should switch his filling? Because, you know, it could be negative life. Um, that's a strange business. And in general, right? In general, he uh, is covey a lot of sodas over there. So there's a certain type of person that's a fan of their street, I can I tell you. And uh, because you find all kind of harifasha svaras, and they're in real life situations. And as I say before, I think this really put them on the map for those who are into this kind of stuff. Um, they recently reprinted a set, but it really was basically the old thing. Now, I'm not a, uh, a kosher glover, uh, you know, fanatic or anything, so maybe they included extra things here and there that I didn't notice. But, uh, you know, I'm still waiting for the uh, the deluxe uh, copy to come out with the footnotes and all the rest of it, because it's a lot of fun. You read his style of writing, you see he's having fun. And that's the simcha over there. And, uh, you know, sometimes people write Svarim Chubas, a very uh, solemn uh, kind of mood, and all the rest of it, and they're complaining, oh, yeah, mama's babodah, and times are hard, and this is bad. Uh, he doesn't write like that. He likes this. And it's very, as I say, it's very Moshech. You understand? So it's really, I think, this personal quality comes across in the uh, writings, and that's what's got him, I think, a lot of fans. Now, he has, remember, I told you before, he was a Rav also, and a Hasidic Rav, not a, not a Rebbe, but a Rav, and so he gave these, uh, you know, like the Rebbe's do with the Echal Shodas, you know, the Torah, and so forth, and a lot of these end up in these others for him that he wrote. I've seen him here and there. I remember one, uh, which is cute, and that is Kamsa Bar Kamsa. Uh, you know the story, obviously, in in, in uh, Tishabo, Kamsa by Kamsa. And, you know, there was a guy who's, how's it go? One guy was Kamsa, the other was by Kamsa, and they invited the wrong guy, and that started the whole mess. Uh, now, isn't it funny that one guy was named Kamsa, and the other was by Kamsa? So, the regular way you learn it is, and Hanami, you know, one guy was named the Cone, and the other guy was named Khan, you know, whatever, it could be, it's possible. One guy was named Abrams, and the other was named Abrams' son, it could be. And uh, that was a goof of why the mix-up occurred, and so on, and so on and so forth. By the way, from a history perspective, I shouldn't even throw this in, it's a very problematical pers- uh, story, simply because if you read Josephus, the leader, one of the leaders of the bad groups of the Agrippa followers was a guy whose name was Comsus Barcomsus. That was his name, Comsus Barcomsus, which sounds like it's one guy. So there's a whole book with this. But the Marsha, you know, says Comsus Barcomsus was father and son. It was Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. And I remember the Kaja Glover has a whole thing that they invited the wrong, you know, one of them was friends and the other one was the son of the friend. But it turns out the father, I think, was the friend. But the father really hated the host. And he conveyed that to the son. And when the son came, he acted in an obnoxious way and the guy threw him out. Something like that. <laughs> Very harifistic way of going through the story of Kamsa by Kamsa. That kind of thing. So if you're that type, <coughs> which a lot of people are, 
It's not the Litvish Estab, but that big deal, you know, big deal. Um, if you like that style, then he's the man. Now, as I said, life is strange, and he had just four years. From 35 to 39, he ran the yeshiva. The boys liked him. She would start taking off. They never got rid of their money problems, but, you know, they had uh, committees try to raise the money for them and all the rest of it. And to the best of my knowledge, he didn't have to involve himself with the money raising. So that was good. So he could devote himself full-time to the yeshiva stuff. He gave up being a rub of a town. Uh, he, he became, like you say, Rashiva of a place. I don't know if he had deputy magasheers, but look at all the big people that came out from that from the 30s that learned under him, you know, Vosner and Arsprung and all the others. You know, they obviously, you know, he uh, was a, a good mechanic and he inspired guys. He inspired them. So he must have had this uh, winning uh, personality. But then the whole thing was closed down because Hitler came in. And um, they were terrible, you know, obviously. You know, they came to the Chachem Lubin and the yeshiva had 20,000 swarm library and the Nazis burned it in, in, in front of the yeshiva building like you, like they did in the Inquisition, you know, in, back in the 1200s in Paris. And I remember the German newspapers were making, all oh, the Jews were crying and wailing and they thought that's a lot of fun and all that. So that's who these moms there were. And then he ended up in the ghetto and then they uh, eventually sent him to one of those uh, Maidenek, you know, one of those extermination places. I don't know if you know this or not, most of the concentration camps were not concentration camps, they were extermination camps. He got off the train, five minutes later you're in the gas chamber, you know, that's, that's the way he went. And he unfortunately was one of those. He had relatives that survived the war, I remember he had a brother who lived in Israel, and he helped, you know, publish some of the stuff. But um, he, his, his fame is coming from the writings, his fame is coming from the writings. So, uh, here's somebody but I wish I knew better, and I'm not sure historically if you can get at this, you know, what exactly was the style of learning in the Chachalablin that evolved during his four years? Maybe he wasn't there long enough. Was he Machadish a new thing? From between the interaction between him and the students, did they come out with a unique Chachalablin way of learning? You and I generally think of Chachalablin as these unbelievable became. This is a Galician you know, they know whole shots by heart, the pin test and all the rest of it. I'm not saying it's not true. I don't know, it could very well be. But there's got to be more than that. And uh, maybe in future we'll discover this. Uh, at least I can only tell you what I know so far. So uh, this is an uh, unusual person, but I think the best thing to take away from him, unless you read the Chubas, then you'll have fun, is this idea of fun. That's what it seems to me. Uh, the, the, we can only succeed as parents and grandparents in getting the young generation into learning if we make it fun. Uh, and I don't mean you dumb it down or anything like that at all, but it's got to be that the experience of learning is a fun experience. Because uh, we live in a society when everything else, is, you, you know, you, there's so many things to entertain you with. It's got to be the person's like this. I know I can go on the internet, I, you know, this, but I'd rather learn this with this Neskavrus or go to this year because it's fun. It's the, like I said before, the Igli Talsa is the highest Madrega, and he was a person of that type. Okay, have a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.com 
support.rabbidavidkatz.com.